0: Hello, everyone. Jennifer Doliak here. The Probable Causation team is hard at work on some new episodes, but today we're rebroadcasting one of our favorite interviews, first posted in January of 2020. In this episode, I talk with Aurelie Ouss about her research on using behavioral insights to reduce failures to appear in court. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to Probable Causation, a show about law, economics, and crime. I'm your host Jennifer Doliak of Texas A&M University, where I'm an economics professor and the director of the Justice Tech Lab. My guest this week is Orly Ouse. Orly is an assistant professor of criminology at the University of Pennsylvania. Orly, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Today we're going to talk about a field experiment that you ran in New York City using behavioral science and nudges, including text messages to reduce failure to appear rates among those who received a court summons. Before we do that, though, could you tell us about your research expertise and how you became interested in this topic?
1: Absolutely. So I have been uh, conducting research on the economics of crime since before I started my PhD. Um, That was the topic that I was uh, most interested in. I wanted to learn how economics tools uh, could help us figure out what crime reduction policies worked, how we could design an effective and a fair criminal justice system. Um, And then more recently, I got interested in research at the intersection of behavioral science and crime policy. Uh, Specifically, I was interested in learning more about when the traditional incentives uh, that we think about work to reduce crime. And when criminal justice actors thinking about judges, juries, police officers actually think uh, about incentives when they're making their own decisions versus when are people uh, making mistakes or deviating from this uh, uh, cost benefit analysis, which is one of the guiding tools we have um, when in economic theory. So I, you know, there had been Um, some work in behavioral science, a growing body of work showing success uh, across different fields, you know, health, uh, personal finance, environment, education, lots of really encouraging work showing that when we are more cognizant about um, mistakes that people make, we can develop uh, policies that either take these into account or um, uh, remedy them or leverage them. To design better policy. But that's not something we were doing in crime policy, so I got interested in figuring out um, whether these approaches also worked for criminal justice policy.
0: Your paper is titled, Nudging Crime Policy, Reducing Failures to Appear for Court, and it's co-authored with Alyssa Fishbane and Anoush Shah. And you're focused on people who get summonses in New York City. So tell us about the summons process there. What's the set of offenses you might get a summons for, and what is the process that a person needs to go through in order to deal with a summons in New York?
1: So this differs across jurisdictions. I feel like we often talk about the criminal justice system, but there's actually tons of local criminal justice systems. And so it really varies from place to place. Um, in New York City, which is where our study took place, uh, summonses are the lowest level uh, offense that one uh, can be uh, can have interactions with the criminal justice form. And in other places, they may be called things like citations. Uh, the kinds of offenses that get you a summons are quality of life offenses. So the most frequent one would be open containers. Uh, about a third of summons recipients uh, got, were ticketed for an open container. Other frequent uh, summonses are things like park trespassing or cannabis, And that's actually interesting because cannabis used to be one level up, and uh, it recently uh, became a summonsable offense uh, as uh, New York City was moving towards less criminalization of uh, cannabis. So a person, uh, when they get a summons, what happens is they are given by a police officer a ticket, and their next step is that they have to show up to court. Uh, for this offense. And that's basically it. So they uh, uh, are just uh, given this ticket and have to show up to court. And this is the next step for this kind of offense.
0: And then once they do show up in court, is it usually a fine or a fee or is it something someone might go to jail for?
1: It is not something uh, somebody may go to jail for. Typically, they may um, get a fine or a fee, or their case may be dismissed, or uh, you know, no no jail time. You know, in the vast majority of cases, just for a summonsable offense, one would not face jail time.
0: Okay, and the problem you're trying to help the city solve is that a lot of people who get a summons don't show up to court. So, talk about the problem of failures to appear (FTAs) for short. How big a problem is this nationwide and in New York City in particular? What do we know about the people who aren't showing up to court each year? And what happens if you miss your court date?
1: So again, this is a great question, and the answer would really uh, differ jurisdiction by jurisdiction. Um, so nationally, the failure to appear rate uh, for felony defendants is around 20%, and I think these numbers are for 2016. Um, so the failure to appear rate is, is, is quite large, even for felony offenses, which um, you know, are the most serious types of offenses in the context that we're looking about uh summonsable offenses the failure to appear rate was even higher uh 41% of people before we started working on this project were not showing up to court for their for for their uh court date they were missing court um and so you know uh the the Consequence for not showing up to court is actually that a new offense is is added uh, to you. So an, an arrest warrant is open. And that means that the next time you interact with law enforcement, you could be arrested for having this open warrant. So even though, and this is the case also for summonsable offenses. Right? So even if the initial uh, thing that I did may you know, not appear to be a big deal, if I don't show up to court, then I have an open warrant. And so um, I, the police officer can arrest me for having this open warrant. And I think another consequence is um, that if I'm arrested for a more serious offense, then uh, a judge may be figuring out whether I should be in jail pretrial or not. And in many jurisdictions, including New York, um, the one thing that a judge will take into account when making this pretrial decision or the thing that they're supposed to uh, put their weight on is whether I am likely to show up to court or not. And if they think that I'm uh, likely to not show up to court, then I'm, i I may you know be accruing some points or the judge may think that I'm you know at higher risk. So either with a formal point system or more informally, that's what their uh, perception is. And um, in turn, this means that having missed a court date, the best predictor for missing a future court date, is having missed a past court date. And so this failure to appear even for, for again, a small summonsable offense, quality of life offense, can result in me being more likely to spend uh, time in jail pretrial. And then lastly, there can be some consequences of having an open warrant. This, again, varies by jurisdiction. But there can be some consequences uh, in terms of access to some social welfare. There can be some immigration consequences for people who are not US citizens. So having an open war in itself can just trickle in a lot of different kinds of problems.
0: So before this study, what had we known about what drives FTAs and how to reduce them?
1: So that's a great question. And I think, you know, there's a twofold answer to this question. Um, one, there is some uh, uh, descriptive work uh, interviewing people and trying to understand um when they had missed court dates or when they had shown up to court, what was driving their decision? And um, I can tell you a little bit about work that others have done. Um, but also, this uh, project was uh, done with a with a team of people. So you mentioned um, my co-authors Shah and Alyssa Fishbane. I should say this was a randomized controlled trial, and uh, as with these kinds of projects, lots of people were involved. Particularly, we had some uh, terrific research assistants: Binta Diop, uh, Bryce Cook, and John Hayes, and um, others, you know, uh, in the uh, in in our team as well, and. And are the, uh, Alyssa Vishbane is uh, affiliated with the lab, IDS42. And their team conducting some, conducted some interviews to ask defendants why they had shown up to court or why they hadn't shown up to court. And it's really interesting to see the range of responses uh, that people would say. Um, some people would uh, bring up things like, uh, fears of not being treated fairly by the criminal justice or would bring up motives like you know feeling that the kind of offense for which they were asked to show up to court was not legitimate some mentioned that they didn't really know what the consequences of not showing up to court was they didn't think it was a big deal so you know some just seemed like they didn't have the right information um, some people also mentioned some logistical barriers that were holding them back from uh, showing up to court. Things like how do I, um, uh, how do I arrange to not miss work? How do I uh, figure out childcare? How do I concretely, you know, show up to the court? Um, so it's a mix of mundane reasons and of more profound reasons or barriers that were preventing people from showing up to court. Um, What's interesting to me is when we look at our current criminal justice uh, policy, what are the tools that we have uh, for people to show up to court? Um, things that the most frequent kinds of policies that we have are first, pretrial detention. Um, that mechanically uh, brings failures to appear down to zero because the person is you know, in jail pretrial awaiting for their uh, trial. And uh, about 20% of people who are behind bars in the United States have actually not had their uh, trial yet, their pretrial defendants. Um, And then the second very uh, frequent tool is monetary bail, right? And the idea behind monetary bail is that if people have some financial collateral, um, then they uh, will have skin in the game; they will be more likely to want to comply. And in a separate project, that's a, a topic that I've I've studied with uh, Megan Stevenson. Um, and so, if we look at our policies our policies really have this uh, flavor of either you know, mechanically and at very high cost to society and to the defendants, making sure that people uh, come up to court, um, or trying to sh- change people's incentives for compliance by adding some form of either supervision or financial collateral for them to fail. So while both the interviews that we conducted and uh, um Past research, you know, there's one study in particular in Nebraska, which tested whether sending people different kinds of postcards to show up to court was effective in reducing failures to appear, uh, pointed at more mundane barriers or crime policies um, uh, uh, tend to insist more or to leverage more, um, uh, changing incentives for people to comply.
0: So you frame this study as a test of whether people who don't show up to court are actually rational decision makers who are responding to incentives or whether they're simply making mistakes as you just described. So you and your co-authors discuss a few possible reasons that people might fail to appear in court other than the standard economist's ex- explanation that it's a rational choice. So what reasons do you have in mind there?
1: Absolutely. Um, and I should say again, like, I think sometimes the rational choice agent is a little bit of a straw man. I think in the context of criminal justice policy, um, even if people aren't explicitly using the rational agent model, in terms of how they think about why people uh, commit offenses. Um, de facto, the kinds of policies that we have um, uh, would work if a person were thinking about the costs and benefits of their actions. So I gave examples uh, from uh, showing up to court. But think about other policies such as you know more policing, longer sentences. These also work on these same levers. We want to increase deterrence and deterrence works if people are actually paying attention to the costs and benefits um, of their actions. And then on the flip side, if you think about policies such as job training or longer education, then that seems to be improving the outside option to committing crime. So again, trying to change people's uh, calculus. And I don't want to you know give the impression that I don't think these policies work. Um, First, you know, there's an extensive literature showing that these policies, uh, uh, do tend, to, you know, with, with differing varies of, with varying, uh, degrees of success to, uh, reduce crime. Um, but you know, our hypothesis is that as um, a society, we haven't really thought about other things that can be driving some forms of uh, offending. And uh, so we're not developing policies that could help uh, address that side of the problem. And so you know, the one mechanism that we focus on, In this project is to think about inattention. So I mentioned previously other reasons why people may be not showing up to court, such as uh, uh, financial or logistical barriers towards showing up to court, or uh, lack of trust uh, in the courts. This is not something that we um, test directly. What we test is whether people may simply not be paying attention To their court date, right? They don't take the extra minute to figure out, okay, concretely, what am I supposed to do to show up to court? Or uh, they forget about their court date and nothing reminds them that they actually have to show up to court. So these are the two. uh, So this inattention barrier is the main one that uh, we're focusing on in this project.
0: So you consider the effects of two interventions in this study. One is redesigning the summons form to make the important details more salient to people. And the second is sending text message reminders to people who gave you cell phone numbers. So let's talk about each of these. First, tell us about the form that you get when you get a summons and how you and your research team changed it.
1: Absolutely. So, uh, the form that, uh, people that defendants used to get when they, um, were, when the police officer handed it out to them, it's, you know, informally called a pink ticket. And uh, think about any administrative form that you got in the past. It had a lot of information. So the way it was organized, the first, I want to say, third of the form described the offense and provided information about uh, the person who was receiving the ticket. So things like their address, um, and their date of birth, things like that. And it wasn't until the very bottom of the form um, that their next steps, which is to say that they had to show up to court and where they were supposed to show up, um, appeared. And then it wasn't until the back of the form, so a defendant would have to flip the form and look at the other side to see that if they didn't show up to court, uh, they would get an arrest warrant. So the form was organized in a way where the really important information, uh, namely that they had to show up to court on this day at this time, um, and if they didn't show up to court, they would get an arrest warrant, was buried within the form. And so we worked to make several changes to the form, but in particular, uh, the way the form is currently organized is that the first thing that shows up is, tells a person, this is a criminal appearance uh, ticket, you must show up to court on this day at this place. And in order to avoid a warrant for your arrest, you must show up to court, right? And so all of this information is just made very clear at the very top of the form. So the idea behind this intervention was to help uh, reduce the amount of attention necessary to get the relevant information. So once again, all of the information was already there in the old form. It just took, you know, maybe if a person wanted to look for this information, it may take them something like 30 seconds to a minute to find it. Whereas on the new form, it just jumped out at you from the very start.
0: Yeah, and I've seen you present this paper so you can actually show images of the two forms side by side up on the screen. and It is extremely striking. Like the old form is just... A convoluted mess of boxes to fill in that yeah. you really have to sit down and really focus on to figure mm-hmm. out what's in there. And the new form, it, it really is highlighted like, this is your court date, you will get an arrest warrant if you don't show up. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can see very clearly how that could make a difference. Yeah. Um, okay. So then next, you used the cell phone numbers that people gave you or gave the police uh, to test additional intervention, text message reminders, and you actually tested a few different types of messages. So, tell us about each of those.
1: Yeah, so, you know, I think we were interested in two big picture questions. First, we wanted to know whether receiving any text message uh, could help reduce failures to appear in court. You know, um, I think nowadays everybody who goes to the dentist and possibly also to the doctor, we get text message reminders about this thing that we may not really want to do. Um, However, in the criminal justice, we, this doesn't really exist. So a first order question was, you know, will reminders uh, reduce failures to appear in court? I think you know to start out with, it's, it's, uh, you could see how this would help if people were forgetting, but on the other hand, you know I think the consequences seem so big of not showing up to court to have an arrest warrant uh, that it's not trivial whether it's actually the case that people are forgetting and therefore an intervention that helps you remember would um, be effective. The second level question that we were interested in was figuring out what kind of text message was most effective. Um, so we tested uh, two main uh, approaches. One was to be very explicit and to remind people that if they did not show up to court, they would get an arrest warrant. And so uh, the kinds of messages uh, that they would say would say something like, um, Helpful reminder, go to court on Monday, June 3rd at 9.30, we'll text you to help remember, show up to avoid an arrest warrant. So it really wasn't a mystery, it was just uh, written out there. And then conversely, we had some simple uh, reminder plan-making messages, which started the same way helpful reminder, go to court on Monday, June 3rd at 9.30 a.m. But instead of bringing up the warrant, we'd say something like, mark the date on your calendar and set an alarm on your phone. So uh, defendants would all get three text messages a week before, two days before, uh, three days before, sorry, and the day before their uh, court appointment. Um, But either they would be reminded that they would get an arrest warrant if they didn't show up to court, or this was not brought up at all. And we were interested in figuring out um, to what extent um, people were just forgetting or not getting accurate information or not recalling accurate information about a forthcoming, about the fact that they would get an arrest warrant if they did not show up to court.
0: And in order to measure the causal effects of each of these interventions, the new form and the text messages, you had to implement them in a way that gave you both a treatment group and a control group. Um, And the way you do this is a bit different across the two interventions. So how were the new forms distributed and how did this allow you to measure the causal effects of the change?
1: Yes. So both interventions you know kind of uh, the gold standard for uh, an, to have a causal estimate of whether these interventions would reduce failures to appear um, would be to do a randomized control trial where we flip a coin uh, to determine whether you get a text message or not or whether you get a new form or not um, and you know the kind of information that you're given. This was actually possible to do for the text messages and I'll go over this uh, in a little bit. Um, but it was not possible to do for the new form intervention. So concretely, what happens is these are tickets that are given out by NYPD officers. And so uh, they walk around with a pad of summons forms. And the idea that they would, you know, Randomly give some defendants an old form or a new form, or that you know some officers would be randomized to get old forms and new forms. This was just not possible uh, to do in the field. Um, the logistical constraints would be much too complicated, and so instead we came up with another uh, strategy to uh, evaluate the effect of of these forms. So each police officer, uh, each NYPD police officer, has to walk around with. lot of stuff. And they could only walk with one pad of forms, right? So they could only have a pad of the old forms or of the new forms. And so each form has a serial number, and we can tell when the serial numbers reflect old forms or new forms. And so what we can do is figure out um, for each individual police officer um, when was the first new form that they gave. And one was the last old form that they gave. At some point, they, you know, when they ran out of old forms, or at one point, NYPD decided to just retire the old forms and all officers would start using new forms. And so each officer would change at a, a different date when they started to use the new forms. And so what we do is compare uh, someone's recipients who happen to be either among the last. Who got an old form for a given officer who gave them the form versus one of the first to get the new forms. And so, by focusing on this uh, narrow time window, just before and just after a police officer changed uh, the kind of summons forms that they were working, uh, that they were giving out to summons recipients, um, we're able to get the causal effect of uh, summonses on court compliance.
0: Right. And so the intuition here is that it's essentially random that you happen to get the old form versus the new form because you just you, you know, got a summons the day before or the hour before or something like that. It wasn't a situation where like the police officer was deciding to give you the simpler form because you seemed like you paid less attention to what was going on right. or something You're, like
1: that. Yeah. You paid less attention or you seem like a nice guy, let me give you the new form. Right. And- and the nice thing is, you know, there's a lot of seasonality in in crime and offending, also in, in court compliance, actually. And so the nice thing is since there was a staggered rollout, each police officer, you know, there were a few a few months during which police officers were changing forms, were able to uh, control for this seasonal time trends.
0: That's great. Yeah. So some officers had some form, had some, one form, and some officers had the other. Yes. Um, great. And then... Uh, you said the text messages are in RCT, so, um, so that's a little bit simpler, (laughs) but tell us, tell us how the text messages were implemented and, and how that allowed you to measure the causal effects there. Yeah, so, uh,
1: the, Text messages uh, were sent to defendants who had provided a phone number on their form. Um, and the text messages were sent directly by the Office of Court Administration. So it wasn't sent by us, it was sent directly by uh, the Office of Court Administrations. There's a couple of reasons why this is important. First, you know, it's uh, an official thing, like it's not coming from a team of researchers, it's actually coming from the courts themselves. And second, the nice thing of working from the start with our amazing partners at the Office of Court Administration is that um the idea was if this works, uh we want to be able to continue sending what text messages and especially the most effective uh, text messages, Um, uh, and so to be in a situation where we're, we're able to continue this work. And so they built the infrastructure from the start of the study with the idea that if they already built the infrastructure, they could continue doing this even when the research was done. Um, and so the nice thing is that, you know, this is all on the back end. We could just, uh, flip a coin to determine whether a defendant would get no message at all, whether they would get warrants messages where we brought up the fact that they may get an arrest warrant if they didn't show up to court or the simple reminder plan making messages. Um, and the idea was, you know, in order to learn whether these work or whether they're a waste of people's time, of court resources, we uh, were going to conduct this experiment uh, with the idea that this would be a short-run thing and that if we found a winner, then all defendants would be able to benefit uh, from these text messages.
0: And as you mentioned, you were working directly with New York City to run these experiments, which presumably made data access easier. So what data were you able to get to analyze the effects of these two interventions?
1: So we got data from the Office of Court Administration and uh we were using administrative data which told us for each defendant why they had gotten a ticket and whether they showed up to court or not as well as additional information such as uh their some some sociodemographic information um though not a lot and the exact date at which um they had received their ticket, uh, whether they had gotten summonses in the past, whether they had failed to appear to court in the past, and the place where they received their ticket.
0: Okay, so let's talk about the results. What do you find is the effect of the new summons form on the likelihood of showing up to court?
1: So the uh, both, we find that both interventions actually work really well to uh, reduce failures to appear. So let me start with the uh, summons form. Um, we find that uh, getting a new summons reduces likelihood of failing to appear in court by 13%. So out, this is a six percentage point decrease in rates of failures to appear. And I think to me, this was the most surprising uh, result um, from this study. So I'll, before I, I contrast both of these results together, let me also tell you what our results are for text messages. We find that text messages overall reduce failures to appear as well. And uh, actually the magnitude is even bigger than uh, for the new forms. So we find that uh, getting any text message reduces failures to appear by 20%. Um, and that this is uh, uh, driven both by messages which mention warrants. This is where we find the biggest effect. We find a 25% reduction in failures to appear for defendants who uh, got a message telling them, you know, if you don't show up to court, you'll get an arrest warrant. But we also find a 16% decrease in failures to appear for those who got uh, the simple reminders that did not w- mention the consequences of not showing up to court. So let's take all of these results together. Um, first, um, the fact that the warrant messages are the most effective messages shows that actually, you know, I, I started by saying that deterrence is one of the guiding principles that we have as we des- the, as we develop our uh, crime reduction policies. And this difference between um, the warrant messages versus the simple plan-making reminder messages uh, suggest that actually um, reminding people of consequences of not showing up to court, bringing up uh, this potential punishment is effective, right? So this this speaks in favor of deterrence. However, the fact that the simple plan-making messages also work suggests that this is not the only thing that is driving compliance. It is not just because people are afraid of the consequences of their actions that they behave in a certain way. Actually, uh, some people seem to just have been forgetting the fact that they had a court date coming up. And then I started in presenting my results by saying that the uh, new form results were most surprising to me. And the reason for that is that on the old form, again, all information was already there. It was, yes, it was more complicated to find, but it was all there. And here, all we did was move things around, and um, that also was effective in reducing failures to appear, suggesting that people just weren't taking the extra you know, 30 seconds to one minute that it took to figure out what they were supposed to do to be in compliance, um, suggesting that inattention uh, may have been playing a role even at the get-go when they were getting this information. So that was really a striking result for me.
0: Yeah, I I agree. The the effects here are are just huge across the board. Um, And then you also had these post-court date text messages for people who missed their appointments. What were the effects of those?
1: Yeah. And I wanted to clarify one thing. This was a really interesting uh, project because uh, it was um, at the intersection of... Big research questions. I told you my research agenda is trying to figure out whether in the criminal justice people are also making mistakes as we, as past literature had shown that people had been making mistakes in other domains as well. Um, our, uh, we pre registered our hypotheses that we were testing to write, um, the uh, research paper. And, uh, we wanted to, uh, limit the Number of tests that we were running to make sure that we wouldn't have any false positives. However, our partners, our policy partners, had a different set of questions that they were interested in, and so we wanted to help them answer questions that may not be uh, of you know uh, the same research relevance, but that would be extremely important for them to design the kinds of policies they were interested about. Questions about what is the right number of text message uh, that we that we wish that we should send. Um, another question was uh, whether robocalls, whether there was a difference between robocalls and text messages, and we. we Really, for the research purpose focused on text messages, um, one of the questions they were interested in was whether text messages after one's uh, uh, court dates, telling people about the the they're telling them that they had missed a court date, and either informing them of the consequences of not having shown up to court, or telling them that most people had actually shown up to, to court using. Um, uh, kind of a social norms messaging, which again has been effective in other domains as well was also helpful so that's something that we study in uh, a policy memo that we wrote and that we don't include in our in our, in our research paper and we find that these text messages actually um, help increase the uh, the effects um, it, there's kind of a plateau in how much you can uh, help people uh, uh, comply. Um, but still, this, these additional messages seem to be helpful. Um, you know, if you just compare, if a person were to get a text message uh, before their court date or a single text message after they would already missed their court date, the messages before one's court date are more effective than a single message after one's court date. Um, but uh, so, but overall, the additional message after one's court date may help as well.
0: So, what you just said about um, there might be a, a limit to how much you could help people comply makes me wonder if there, if it's possible for you to tell from the data if there are certain kinds of people who, for whom these kinds of reminders or nudges might work. Uh, like, are there any differences across these different interventions in terms of you know people who are given summonses for certain crimes respond to this, but not other crimes or it's young people, but not old people or something like that.
1: You know, that's something that uh, we haven't really looked at yet. It mm-hmm. may be something that we look at in a future project.
0: Yeah. Um, okay. So another aspect of this that that you guys are very upfront about in the paper um, is that only a subset of the people who got a summons gave the police a cell phone number. So I think the number was around 10% of the total number of um, summonses that were given out. So talk a little bit about how representative this group is of the broader population. And I guess the kind of the question in the background here is how likely is it that the police might be able to get cell phone numbers from more people now that you've shown this is a really effective intervention and we might want to scale it up?
1: Uh, that's a great question. Yeah, so 10% of people uh, provided uh, phone numbers, and they do differ from people who did not uh, provide phone numbers. So let me give you a few uh, dimensions along which they differ. First, they, the people who provided a phone number tend to be younger. Um, there are a few differences in terms of what kinds of offenses um, they uh, got their ticket for. So they're a little bit less likely to have gotten a ticket for alcohol, a little more likely to have gotten a ticket for uh, cannabis consumption. And there are some variations uh, across places. Um, In uh, Manhattan, they were more likely to uh, provide um, uh, cell phones compared to a, a borough like Queens. Um, However, they were similar in some dimensions as well. For example, they were just about as likely to have gotten a summons in the past or to have failed to appear in court in the past. And another interesting comparison is to look at failure to appear rate for people who did not provide a phone number. Um, versus people who provided a phone number, but were randomized into the control group and so did not get any text messages. So 41% of people who did not provide a phone number um, failed to appear in court. Uh, by comparison, those who provided a phone number but didn't get a text message of these didn't show up to court. So yes, there is a difference. This is a three percentage point difference. Um, However, 38% is still a big number. So it's not like people who are super compliers were uh, giving phone numbers. One challenge with this uh, study chair question about scaling is that police officers during the study couldn't really tell defendants, you know, give me your phone number and you will for sure get a text message reminder. They had to say some language like you may get a text message reminder because again, while the study was underway, um, some defendants were uh, randomized into getting no text message at all. And so this may have been one barrier towards collecting uh, more phone numbers, and I think you know that uh, while in our particular context we worked, police officers were collecting phone numbers, and also we worked with uh, summonses. I think that based on those results, it doesn't have to be a police officer who collects this phone number. You could think that somebody else, like you know, a defendant's uh, attorney, could be uh, sending these kinds of reminders. So, there are other people in in the criminal justice who could be uh um uh, uh collecting these phone numbers if a defendant is a little bit um shy or not or wary about giving their phone number to a police officer, maybe there are other people who could be collecting these phone numbers and sending these reminders
0: That last point's really interesting. I've heard some um Folks more on the kind of defense attorney side worry about these sorts of text message interventions as basically creating a paper trail that could get their clients into trouble if the, if the text message is coming from the court rather than their lawyer. Is that something you thought about here?
1: Absolutely, and that's another reason why you know I think that the uh, form redesign intervention is is really interesting. Actually, we conducted some uh, estimations uh, to uh, measure how many warrants were avoided, and so I told you that the most effective text message reduces failure to appear by about a quarter, um, and that the uh, new form reduces this failure to appear by thirteen percent. But everybody got a new form, right? And so actually, when we translate that into warrants uh, uh, avoided, we think that more arrest uh, warrants were avoided thanks to the new form than thanks to the text messages. And the nice thing is that these concerns of, you know perhaps it's not ideal for uh, defendants to be providing their phone numbers um, don't apply in this case. they're getting a piece of paper everybody, you know, in the criminal justice, we have lots of paper. And I think that, you know, part of these results are saying that this is a touch point that we have. Let's try to design these forms in ways that will provide the relevant information in a way that accounts for inattention that is happening in a way that is simple. Um, So to increase compliance, kind of sidetracking these issues that you bring up.
0: Okay. So the last thing you do, and I think it was the paper, not the policy proof, maybe both, was that you conducted some online experiments to try to understand what drives the public's perception of why people miss their court dates and why the public isn't more supportive of applying behavioral science in this context rather than just increasing punishments for FDAs as you discussed in the beginning. So yes. talk about what you find there.
1: So this uh, work uses online experiments uh, using Amazon Mechanical Turk. And so just to be uh, clear about this, we're not running these studies with uh, criminal justice actors, right? The idea that we're trying to get at here is how do lay people think about what is driving uh, failures, in the criminal justice context, as opposed to failures in other contexts. So what we did is that we presented people with different vignettes, describing a person who had to do something unpleasant and then did not go through with this something unpleasant that they had to do. So for example, uh, this could be a person has to show up to court in 30 days. They don't want to show up to court in 30 days. um, And then they do not show up to court. Why do you think this happens? And we contrast this to a very similar question, which would say a person has to pay a bill uh, in 30 days. They don't want to pay this bill in 30 days. Why do you think this person did not comply? So all that we're changing here is the type of action that a person did not do. And then we asked a few questions. We, first, we asked them uh, whether they thought that this failure, this non-compliance, uh, was due to an intentional action or to simply forgetting, and then second, we asked them whether they were supportive of nudges. So in this case, we limited ourselves to uh, reminders, whether they thought that um, our reminders would be a good idea in terms of a policy to curb that behavior. And so we compare uh, people's attitudes towards courts towards forgetting to show up to court, to other uh, domains, so not paying a bill, uh, in the education domain, not signing up for classes, not showing up to a doctor's appointment, or uh, not taking care of a reduction of an emissions uh, reductions intervention. And what we find is that people are much more likely to think that, uh, uh, failing in the criminal justice domain is due to intention and that it is not due to forgetting. And they're less likely um, to support nudges in the criminal justice context compared to those other failures. So people somehow are thinking differently of the court context than they are uh, for other reasons that people are not following through on things that they are supposed to be doing. And so what's interesting to us here is that Perhaps you know the, the kinds of technologies that I talked about, sending text messages, and even more so, uh, putting some work into designing a form or designing information, presenting an information in a way that is clear to defendants. These are not difficult to do. These are also not costly to do. The, the one of the reasons why these things may not be more frequent is that uh, people, when they think about failures in the criminal justice context, may not be thinking about the mistaken dimension, the fact that people may simply be not paying attention or forgetting about uh, uh, what they're supposed to do in the criminal justice context and the way that they think that this could be driving other behaviors.
0: So they might be opposed to this or not supportive of it because they just don't think it will work. Is that, is that basically so the takeaway?
1: Me, so uh I think a bigger takeaway is they may, they may not even think about developing these kinds of policies. Mm. Then when you bring it up and you're like, look, this may work, I think the way I'm thinking about this isn't so much uh, active um, you know, opposition to these policies, but more not thinking about this realm of uh, drivers to people's behaviors and not thinking about policies that could address this part of the problem.
0: So this paper is pretty new, uh, but you've been working on it for a little while. So what else have we learned since you first ran these experiments about either what drives FTAs or about the effectiveness of nudges in the criminal justice space?
1: So this is a really interesting moment to be working on pretrial policy. Um, I think that one of the uh, this is one of the most active areas of of, of research, and uh, since we uh, have been working on this work, um, other studies have looked bo- both about um, have looked both at nudges for failures to appear in court. I'll speak a little bit about uh, nudges more generally in the criminal justice, but also about drivers to compliance. Um, so, one active question is whether uh, other Tools that we have to increase uh, court compliance. What are these effects on, on on people's lives? So this work both takes the shape of uh, several papers looking at the effect of pretrial detention on longer uh, on, on longer outcomes, and then another project uh, that I've been working on with Megan Stevenson is looking, you know, by contrast to these really large effective policies to reduce failures to appear in court, how does monetary bail work? Does monetary bail help with court compliance? And the short answer is, at least in the context that we're looking at, we do not find that uh, monetary bail and uh, pretrial supervision are reducing failures to appear in court. So this is, you know, now this is a very active policy space where I think people are are starting to um, uh, realize both the uh, disparities created by the use of monetary bail and by pretrial detention. And so trying to figure out whether we can move away uh, from these while also not jeopardizing public safety and not uh, uh, increasing failures to appear. You know, And I, I mentioned uh, uh, that this is high, not just for summonses, but also for um, other kinds of offenses. Um, and there's been some really interesting work In testing other uh, kinds of reminders to reduce failures to appear in court, In particular, Natalia Emanuel and Helen Ho, who are graduate students in Harvard, um, have done a large study of uh, behavioral biases and and legal compliance. And their study differs from ours in that they're trying to test um, whether people are lacking um, kind of the know-how to navigate the court system. So that's really interesting. They're not just looking. So we were interested in the inattention mechanism, and they were interested in more than the knowledge of the court system and difficulty navigating the court system uh, dimension. Um, Another innovation that their their, uh, great work brings is that they're able to look at longer-term effects of avoiding these failures to appear, and in particular in terms of future arrests. So that's really exciting work happening. So both in the policy sphere and the kinds of discussions we have around failure to appear and uh, active research, there's a lot going on these days.
0: That's great. Um, yeah, the paper that you mentioned that you're working on with Megan Stevenson, she was on the show a few episodes back talking about that paper. So we will put a link to that episode uh, in the show notes as well if people are interested in hearing more about that. Um, so putting it all together, the results of this study and the other studies we've talked about, what are the policy implications of this work? What have you told New York City? And what would you tell policymakers in other places?
1: So I mentioned that this work was really done in close collaborations with uh, NYPD, the Office of Court Administrations, and the Mayor's Office of Criminal Justice. And the nice thing, you know, it's uh, uh, with working directly with policymakers, um, I should say that this work I, I, I did when I was part of the University of Chicago Crime Lab, and uh, these, this joint partnership um, resulted in being able to scale this study right away in New York City. So now everybody who is uh, a summons recipient um, gets this new form and at the end of our study uh, everybody is getting who every defendant who provides their phone number is currently getting um, these text messages. So these are really kind of the first order uh, immediate policy implications that our work has had. I think that moving forward, um, we published very early on, as soon as we had our initial results, we published a policy uh, memo that we made public. And the reason why we wanted to make this public early on is um, because we wanted people to be able to concretely see what were the text messages that we sent. um, How was the form redesigned? So all of this is online so that other jurisdictions can see what we did how it worked and replicated without having to reinvent the wheel. Um, And that's something that was, I think, really important to us so that policymakers, I I mentioned that um, that these interventions are not expensive and they're pretty easy to do, and we wanted to reduce the extra barrier of like having to invent text messages and having to invent how to redesign a form while also recognizing that there are local specificities in terms of um, what exactly the consequences are, how people would, you know, and what people want to include, what they can or cannot include in their, in their forms and their text messages. Um, so I think, you know, thinking in the realm of failures to appear in court, uh, we hope that we provided tools for policymakers who want to, um uh, replicate this. I think that more generally, you know, why did we start working with summonses, summonsable offenses? Uh, I think this was when we started working on this, one of the first attempts to test whether text messages were effective in, in the criminal justice sphere. And so we wanted to start with a low stakes uh, kind of offense um, in order to make sure that if something um, um, went wrong, it wasn't going wrong for in in the context that could have led to really negative downsides. Uh, Based on this work, I think that policymakers may be more comfortable testing this in higher stake situations, right? And so in particular, I mentioned that uh, some jurisdictions are moving away from monetary bail, and so they can't use uh, money as a collateral for people to show up to court. Um, some jurisdictions are trying to reduce their pretrial population, but they're also cognizant that they don't want to increase their failure to appear rate. And so I think that our results could suggest that, you know, Um, when judges are making decisions about who to release uh, from jail, uh, pretrial or not, um, I think we think more of this as a static thing. You know, a person is high risk or low risk, again, either implicitly or explicitly through risk scores. Our results suggest that actually this is uh, not static and this can be changed, right? And so imagine a judge is worried about um, a person not showing up to court, what we're showing is that there's a tool which could reduce, significant, there are two tools, that can significantly reduce uh, a person's failure to appear risk. And so um, perhaps that they, they would be more likely to be willing to reduce a person from jail pretrial if uh, they had assurance that these mechanisms could um, help with greater compliance. And then moving away from the issue of court compliance, which again, I do not want to minimize since it is one of the big drivers of pretrial detention. I think that there are other ways in which other uh, uh, and behaviors for which people may be uh, uh, making mistakes and that our policies are not currently thinking of as making mistakes. You know, most directly, one could think about uh, uh, probation violations or parole violations as places in which remedying inattention um, could also um help with these policy outcomes. Just to give you an example, um, in in 2016, I think that about a third, a little under a third um, of uh, state and federal prisoners were detained for some form of violation of their parole or probation conditions. So this, again, is a place where if an attention is also driving these kinds of behaviors, this could be a tool that we want to uh, leverage as well. And then more generally, circling back to my general research agenda around uh, behavioral science and and crime policy, here this project is really focusing on one way in which people can make um, mistakes, which is they're not paying attention to the consequences of their actions. Um, But I think that there can be other crimes as well, where, uh, people may not be acting as deliberately as our, our model suggests. And, um, you know, I think when, uh, uh, paper that illustrates this in particular, um, one of my co-authors, Anusha, um, um worked on it. So thinking fast and slow, looking at cognitive behavioral therapy and how this can uh, reduce involvement in, in violent crimes. This is one example of you know recognizing that some decisions may be automatic, um, can help us uh, develop um, some policy tools which would address this automaticity um, and reduce other kinds of crimes as well, as long as we start to uh, put our fingers on other other drivers for crime, and in particular, um, uh, mistaken slash non-deliberate decisions that can be leading to crime and offending, that can help us broaden the kinds of policies that we consider.
0: You've already've you've already alluded to this a little bit, but what is the research frontier here? What are the big open questions in this space that you and others will be thinking about in the years ahead?
1: Um So I think again, like just working on developing other uh, um, other interventions that uh, both address these bears that I mentioned, I think we're not done uh, figuring out places in which inattention can be playing a role, in which automaticity may be playing a role among uh, uh, and and driving some offending. So trying to understand what shape it takes could help us develop uh, policies to reduce crime other than just uh, the the usual deterrence policies. And then more broadly, thinking about uh, mistakes uh, that uh, actors in the criminal justice, you know, judges, uh, jurors, prosecutors, public defenders, police officers may be, may be making or uh, things that they may not be taking into consideration uh, could help improve their decision-making process as well.
0: My guest today has been Aurelie from the University of Pennsylvania. Aurelie, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. You can find links to all the research we discussed today on our website, probablecausation.com. You can also subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Big thanks to Emergent Ventures for supporting the show. And thanks also to our Patreon subscribers and other contributors. Probable Causation is produced by Doliak Initiatives, a 501c3 nonprofit. So all contributions are tax deductible. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting us via Patreon or with a one-time donation on our website. Please also consider leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This helps others find the show, which we very much appreciate. Our sound engineer is John Kerr with production assistance from Nefertari El Sheik. Our music is by Werner and our logo was designed by Carrie Throckmorton. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you in two weeks.